You know, the book of Acts is such an enthralling book, particularly if you're a Christian, even if you're not. Wonderful set of stories to see these astounding things happening against all odds with powerful empires trying to hold back God's work with effectively no resources and nothing going for these itinerant ministers, yet the gospel keeps spreading, keeps transforming lives, keeps changing cities, keeps turning the world upside down, saving people who seem unsavable, reaching places that seem unreachable. If you're like me, it's easy to start thinking of these stories as if they sort of belong in a superhero comic, right? Or Ripley's Believe It or Not. You ever read any of those? Uh, and yeah, they say, well, this really happened. And you think, I guess maybe, but it's too unbelievable to really think of it in the real world. We, you know, again, if you're like me, you start to think that these are the fantastic exploits of larger-than-life champions of faith, a sort of Christian mythology almost, far removed from the kind of regular old Christi- uh, Christianity or spiritual life I should expect. It's a mistake for us to think that way. When we look at these Christian examples found in the book, we discover that they assumed others would also experience the filling of the Spirit. They assumed that all the other Christians were going to be used, were going to be part of the plan, part of the work, part of God's efforts on the earth. Uh, They just took it for granted that that would be the case. They assumed that Uh, God's work would continue not only through a small class of apostles, right, but through what we would call everyday Christians, average Christians, Christians whose names we don't know, Christians like you and me. Paul thought that, right, of young men like Timothy and Titus and the other uh, elders that he appointed in the churches and and the other Christians that he encountered in these different cities. Uh, And really, he thought that of all the Christians that he knew and all the Christians he wrote epistles to, right? He wrote all of his epistles with the assumption that they were going to live out the kind of Christian faith that he was living out. Uh, Certainly, you know, individual Christians have unique callings and unique opportunities that God gives them. But Paul didn't say, well, I do things for God. I'm used by God. I'm filled by the Holy Spirit. The rest of you, you're just going to hang tight and and watch me move. I'm the first string after all, and you guys are just in the cheap seats. That's not how Paul wrote. It's not how he acted. Peter is the same way. He wrote to all of us in his letters that he expected our faith to be strong, to be genuine, that we would be ready for action. And he took that all so much as an assumption that he said, you know, as a Christian, living out your faith, being used by God, the angels of heaven are eagerly watching God unfold his work through you, much in the same way that we eagerly watch God unfold his work through these stories and acts, right? And so it's a mistake for us to separate out those ancient Christians from ourselves as if we're in a lower weight class or we're in a different category, that they're battleships and we're just a little rowboat. Uh, That's not what God wants. But there's also sort of a tendency, particularly when we think about church activity, there's sometimes a tendency to treat the book of Acts as if it's a recipe book, right? That if we would simply mime or copy the methods of the first century church, then that will, you know, quote unquote, unlock the dynamic power of God. Now, first of all, we see that there are all sorts of different methods. There wasn't one set method in any city or uh, according to all the apostles. They're doing all sorts of different things as the Spirit leads and depending on the situation and depending on what was going on. um, These examples are not formulas. They're not formulaic. 
They're a historic testimony of an ongoing effort. Remember, Dr. Luke says in the very first verse of Acts that his books are a record of what Jesus began to do and to teach. And of course, that assumes that Jesus is going to continue doing and teaching things, not just through Acts 28, but on into the rest of human generations as his body continues to operate. For over 2,000 years, Jesus has still been doing and teaching through his body here on the earth, and that's you and me. So if Acts isn't a comic book and if it isn't a recipe book, what is it? Is it just a history book? We know it's more than that. I think it might help to think of it as a book more in the warfare theory category, right? After all, the New Testament says that we as Christians are engaged in a spiritual war, that we're sent out with armor, we're sent out to demolish strongholds, the Bible says, sent out to conquer in the name of our king, not literally in the sense of, you know, uh, old Roman emperors or anything like that, but sent to do spiritual work, to rescue captives, to gain ground on behalf of our Lord. And books about the practice of war will naturally have a historical bent, right? The way you study the theory of war is by studying historic battles and historic figures. And so books about the theory of war are going to have a historical bent, but they're going to be much more than that. They would show you principles of battle science on the one hand, but on the other, they're going to tell you tales not only to stir your hearts, but then to give you real-world application. That is, you know, if you plan on going to war, this thing going to have a good application for you. Now, if you don't plan on going to war, then a book on war theory and battle science and all those sorts of things isn't going to have any application for you. Then it just becomes a history book. Oh, that's an interesting maneuver that they did. That's an interesting change in the battlefield dynamic. Oh, that's an interesting victory when a defeat was expected, right? But if you're planning on going to war yourself, that that book takes on more than historic value. It takes on a personal application as well. But when you would learn from a book like that, if you were in the military and you were going to study that kind of thing, you wouldn't look at a, a, a battle history text and just say, okay, here's what Napoleon did to defeat the armies of Austria, so if I just copy him, I'll win the battle I'm facing, no problem. That's not how it works. We all understand that. So what's the point of all of this? Well, we've come to one of the more celebrated passages of Acts, or one of the more memorable stories in Paul's life as a missionary, and it's Paul on Mars Hill. And I would submit to you that for us, this is one of the more relatable stories in the entire book. You know, of course, the whole book has points of application for us and, and is given to us for a testimony as, and in, as an example and to stir our hearts and to teach us how to follow the Lord more effectively and, and with greater devotional passion and all of that. But it's in the relatively unpersecuted 21st century Christian church, we can see ourselves in this scene a lot more easily than seeing ourselves in a third world dungeon, you know, after being beaten in the city square, right? It's kind of a disconnect. You know, we see these things that Paul endured. None of us have been stoned to death, as far as I know. 
Uh, none of us have been, you know, savagely beaten and dragged around a city and then thrown into the stocks. And so it can be difficult for us to say, okay, and now let me put myself a one-for-one one comparison into that situation. Of course, there's application. We've had 17 chapters of great application and great points and principles that we can kind of glean. But as we're looking through the book of Acts and seeing the testimony of these Christians, this scene feels a lot more like what you and I might experience in regular life. You know, you maybe have never been brought before a church council over an issue of doctrine. I never have. Uh, In other parts of the world, of course, and in other times of history, things like violent persecution and and these church divisions and those sorts of things have been more a regular part of the Christian experience. But for us, That's not something that is part of our day-to-day, at least not right now. But Paul here, speaking to a diverse group of people, each with their own philosophy and perspective and opinion, that's a lot like what you encounter out in the regular Hanford world, right? You may not find yourself in the Areopagus, but is the water cooler at work all that different? Maybe not. Uh, especially as we see this kind of unfolding and, and how it works. So let's take a look at this famous story and see what sort of principles we might gather about God's heart, about his work in the world, and how it might apply to us and through us. We're picking up in verse 16. We are in the city of Athens, Greece, where Paul had fled to escape the danger in Berea. We read, while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, While he was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. What was so different about this city compared to all of the other pagan cities he had visited? It's not like this was his first pagan city, and it's not like any of the other cities were that much better. All of these Gentile places were full of gross uh, pagan idolatry, heathen temples, all sorts of outright polytheism, weird stuff that we don't see in our so, you know, so-called civilized society today. So why did Paul have this kind of sharper reaction than what we've seen before? Well, first of all, Athens was well known for being incredibly idolatrous, even by pagan Gentile standards. Uh, Pausanias was an old guy who lived shortly after Paul's time, and he's known for writing a book called Description of Greece. And he said this, Uh, in the middle 100s AD. He said, there were more images, more idols in Athens than in all of Greece besides, right? Just a super concentration of idolatry. We would also say that Paul was particularly moved by the Holy Spirit in response to what he was seeing. It's not that Paul normally had a casual uh, opinion of sin. He was very sensitive to sin and very sensitive to blasphemy and those sorts of things. He could spot it easily because he had been a blasphemer and because he had dedicated his life to fighting against things like idolatry as a Pharisee and those sorts of things. And so he looked around that day in Athens and and he saw a saturation of idolatry and his heart was stirred by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it was even more stinging because he realized that there, Athens was supposed to be the center of study and learning in the Roman world, right? It was supposed to be the spot for human understanding, right? One commentator described it this way. It was a city thought to be more enlightened than any other city where learning and arts were carried to a greater perfection than anywhere else in the world. 
Paul's a smart guy. He's an educated guy. He's a well-cultured guy. And so he knew what Athens was about and how Athens was celebrated. And as he looked around at this perfected city, this more learned city, this more thoughtful city than anywhere else in all the world, what did he see? What did that city produce? It produced the most lies, the most images, the most idols, the most paganism, snare after snare for people caught in their sin, spiritual ruin for all of these people who thought that they were so wise and thought that they were so on top of the meaning of life and all of these things. No wonder it distressed a man who actually knew the living Savior. He says, no, I know the living Savior. I've seen him. I've spoken to him. He's changed my life. He brought me from darkness to light. And you guys are all sitting here in Athens pretending like you're the smartest guys in the room. And what is it doing? What is it creating? It's creating just a a vomitous pile of idolatry, image after image, carved thing after carved thing, complete waste, complete ruin, just, just the filth of sin, overflowing, overflowing, overflowing. There's a principle of application for us here. We are told that Paul was waiting and that he took a look around and that it moved his heart. He had a spiritual perspective and he saw needs and he saw spiritual needs. Now, in a similar sense, we are waiting. We're not necessarily waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up. We are waiting, though, on the Lord. We are waiting for the Lord's return. And while you're waiting, take a look around and allow God to give you his perspective and then get busy furthering God's work. Get busy addressing those spiritual needs that God puts on your heart. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. One spiritual truth that comes out of this situation is that everyone who isn't born again, everyone who's not a Christian saved by grace through faith, everyone needs salvation equally, right? The Jews needed it just as much as the idol worshipers needed it. The Stoics needed it just as much as the Epicureans. The idol troublemakers, bums in the marketplace, needed it just as much as the shopkeeper in the marketplace. They all needed it. When we look out on the world out there, there are people you know, outside the body of Christ Some of them are more and less desirable to us based upon their behavior, based upon the way they present themselves to the world, based upon the things they've done. They all need Jesus. The religious people do, the non-religious people do. Everybody out there, outside of the kingdom, outside of the family of God, they need salvation on an equal level. And so we need to remember that all of them are in need of God and very importantly, all of them are loved by God. God loved the Jew as much as he loved the Stoic, as much as he loved the Epicurean. He loved them all. They were all made in his image. A point of application here for us is this. Paul wasn't only distressed. We live in a culture that loves to be distressed. We like to be upset. And what does social media exist for, you guys? It used to exist for pictures of cats and food. But have you noticed, those of you who are not super young, those of you who were around and kind of got in at the beginning of social media. Back then, social media wasn't about anger. It wasn't about division. It wasn't about just being upset all the time. Now that's all it's about. You go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, you go on Instagram, you go on these things. You can't avoid the fact that it is an anger mill. 
Yes, every now and then you're gonna see a picture of a cat. That cat's probably mauling some little baby, right? You know, <laughs> look at what this cat did and they didn't do anything about it. Like if you agree, right? And so, you know, we like to be distressed. But Paul wasn't only distressed. He took that spiritual, and for one thing, it was a spiritual, a righteous distress, right? It was a real concern. He wasn't just mad. He was spiritually concerned, and he took that distress, and he walked out onto the field and got involved as an agent of grace and as a representative of Jesus Christ. There's a lot to upset us out in the world today. Look at what this person's doing, and look at this policy, and look at this problem, and look at what this guy said, and, you know, it's just all kinds of stuff to make us mad. It's a lot to upset us, especially as God-loving moral people who believe in justice and we believe in right and wrong and all of that. That's fine. But let's not just be upset, but take our concern and put some legs on it and get to the Lord's business however we can. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. We don't need to get too deep into what it meant to be a Stoic or an Epicurean. Who cares? Suffice it to say, there were different philosophies about how a person should live, right? This was all about how everybody there had a different opinion about the meaning of life, how a person should live, you know, ethics and those sorts of things. And some of these people believed that the gods maybe existed, but they were so far removed, how could they have anything to do with mankind? They didn't have anything to do with mankind, sort of what we would call agnostics, right? Others thought that the highest value of man, the purpose of life, the meaning of life, was to live a good life, according to their own definition, and, you know, to relate well to their friends, right? Some were pantheists, that there's no personal God, God is the universe, right? So we're all over the place, I'm sure there were others there in the marketplace. They did not care about this talk about um, spirituality and eternity and all that stuff. They're there to make a buck, to mind their own business. I'm trying to sell my wares. You're kind of in the way of the shop. And so what we have here is a spectrum of people who have different ideas and different opinions and, and different ways of looking at life. And this is a situation you find yourself in today and I find myself in today, right? There are a lot of people out there in our little world who have a lot of different ideas. You come across them all the time at work or in school or in the donut shop. And the internet has made junior philosophers of everybody, right? I mean, you've got people out there and I, I'm, I'm not necessarily knocking this categorically, kind of them, but, you know, there are people out there who, for example, they watch a Jordan Peterson video, some of you know who that is, and then they start patterning their lives after that. Or they listen to Joe Rogan on a podcast and they start patterning their life. Joe Rogan has a lot of good ideas. Or Oprah Winfrey, pick your poison, right? There's, there's these figures who you say, I listen to that person and then I sort of take on that perspective. Well, you know, I heard this on a podcast the other day or I read this interview or I saw this tweet. I'm basing my life worldview and my outlook and the way that I think about things based off of 140 characters that the guy from Fear Factor wrote, right? <laughs> but people are doing this. And there are other people who dive deep into things like critical race theory. That's something that's being talked about a lot right now, right? 
I've got a good friend from college. You know, he had a testimony of being a Christian while we were in college, but last time I talked to him, he said, yeah, I'm not a Christian anymore. I, you know, got on the internet and I was watching this atheist and he explained how man has no free will. It's just molecules responding. And that's what I think now. You know, he watched a couple videos and now he, he, man doesn't have free will. He doesn't think that on a theological level. He doesn't believe in theology. He thinks it on a philosophical level that we're all just blobs of, you know, cells and tissues that that aren't making any free choices. Very convenient that we're not making any free choices because now we're not responsible for anything, right? And so everybody's a junior philosopher. And, and so on any given day, you and I might encounter a modern-day Epicurean or a Stoic or a scoffer or just people who don't quite understand what you're all about as a Christian. And Paul here examples to us that no matter who you're talking to or what kind of person you're talking about, the target goal is the same. That's what's really great about Christianity. The sales pitch is always the same because we're selling. I hate to use that crass term, but the message is the same, right? What is the message? Tell them the good news about Jesus Christ how he lived, how he died, how he rose again, and what that means for each and every person on the earth. doesn't matter if you're an atheist, an agnostic, a pantheist, a Buddhist, or whatever. The message is still the same. Now, we note that some called him an ignorant show-off, or your translation might say a babbler. In the margin, it probably says seed picker, hayseed, right? <laughs> it shows that even though there wasn't violent hostility to Paul in Athens, which was probably a nice uh, change of pace, there was still hostility. And we as Christians should expect there to be levels of hostility that rear up when we live out our faith or when we speak out our faith. We should expect it. It's not an unusual thing. What's unusual is the um, modern American experience where we, until very recent times, generally don't get bothered at all for being Christians. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. The Areopagus was a prestigious place to be sure. This is quite an opportunity, but the setting we see is somewhat casual. Paul's not on trial. This isn't a big official thing. There's no riot or commotion. There was a group of people interested in hearing him, and they're probably a crowded form, and they said, okay, 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 let's, let's have this guy talk in a slightly more formal setting, but not in the overtly, you know, trial sense that we would expect. It's kind of like if your supervisor at work suddenly says, you go to church, right? And you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> what's about to happen? You know, and, and that's an interesting thing. Uh, that moment can feel intimidating depending on who your boss is or depending on the situation because in many cases, that's a rare opportunity, right? Or maybe you're at some training for work and they're doing a Q&A time and they want input and suddenly the focus is on you and you've got a few moments to speak to professionals and experts and everybody in the room. It can be an intimidating moment. It's kind of a little mini Areopagus, right? Or maybe you're in a college class or a high school classroom or something like that. Uh, and and uh, uh, for the homeschool kids, a high school classroom is when you're in, you're in a room and there's a bunch of, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's opportunities will come, homeschool kids, don't you worry. But, you know, these sorts of, hey, what do you think moments that can be intimidating, they're going to happen. They do happen from time to time. 
Maybe you're just on the family, the extended family text thread, and that one cousin or that one sister-in-law who has a PhD says something that opens a little door for you to respond about Christ, right? And you can think, ooh, I've got a little mini digital Areopagus here. I have a moment. And what am I going to say? What am I going to do? In that moment, we want to rely on the Holy Spirit, but we also want to react quickly. Paul did, right? He didn't say, whoa, this is, you guys are smart, and this is kind of, you know, a big deal, so can I come back in three weeks, and I'll have something really fancy to tell you. He didn't do that at all. He said, yeah, let's go. Let's party. And so he took the opportunity that was presented. And we'll see, Paul doesn't have much time to share, a really short amount of time, but he uses what time he had. And we want to realize that the things we say might sound new and strange to a lot of people. Most of us have been in the church a long time, and these tenets of the faith, this understanding about Jesus Christ, it's go, we've gone over it so much, and we believe it, and it's part of the fabric of who we are. But when we go out into the world and say, Jesus Christ is the God-man, he came and lived and died for your sins, that can be very new and strange to people. And um, these are things that people not only might find strange, but can also get confused by. What we'll find is that in this moment, Paul is not going to present them a teaching. They say, we want to hear a teaching. He did not present them a teaching as much as he's going to present to them a person, very important. And that is a super, super significant principle when it comes to living out life as a witness for Jesus Christ, right? Christianity is not a system. Christianity isn't a formula of life. It's not a philosophy of life. It's a relationship with the living God, our creator, our savior, who then, of course, does take our lives and refashion them and give us a worldview and a mind to use and a way of life. But it is the person we want to present to people, not a philosophy. The philosophies of the world are all duking it out out there. And we say, yeah, this isn't about a philosophy. This is about an actual living person who's still alive, who still knows you, numbered the hairs on your head, and he wants you to know him personally. Verse 21, now the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Luke gives us an editorial comment here, but it can encourage us. Some of the people around us are not on a genuine search for spiritual truth, right? The Philippian jailer that we saw a while back, that guy's in crisis. He wants real answers. He really needs them like right now. Same with the Ethiopian eunuch. That guy's on a genuine search for spiritual truth. He's primed. The pump is primed, right? These folks, some of them were probably earnest and really thoughtful and wanted to know answers to the big questions of life. But a lot of them, it was just kind of part of culture. Let's talk about philosophical ideas. They're just kind of about their business without any real interest in Paul's God. Even so, God's word and the Holy Spirit are powerful enough to break into even hearts like that and make a difference. Verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see you're extremely religious in every respect. You know, it's not good to be extremely religious in every respect. Religion is a terrible, deadly thing. It really is. Look at what intense religiosity did in the Bible, uh, whether it was the Athenian flavor here or the flavor of the Pharisees, right? Human religion is not a good thing. We relate to God on the heart level. 
not on the ritualistic level, not on a legal level. Jesus Christ settled the legal issue at the cross. That's finished, that's done away with. And now we relate to God heart to heart. Verse 23, as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now remember, Athens was supposed to be this pinnacle of thought and learning and spirituality and enlightenment. But think for a moment about how silly this really is. In Greek mythology, the the gods would sometimes come down and mingle with people. And in their mythology, a lot of times they were really cranky. And when they didn't like something, they would wipe out everybody. This is part of the reason why earlier in Acts, they said, hey, you know, Paul and Barnabas, those are the gods visiting us. Let's worship them so they don't murder all of us, right? Because in their mythology, that had happened before. And so that would happen sometimes in their mythology. Now imagine you're Greek and some god, the unknown god, showed up one day and he said, hey, I'm here, I'm powerful, I've got some lightning bolts, I'm trying to decide which way I'm going to go as far as wiping you out. I want to know if you worship me. And their response was, uh, yes, yes. We have a shrine over there. Your name's not exactly on it, but sure, that one's yours. That one's yours. We're going to call that one yours. You good? You good with that? Well, did you search for me or honor me or try to obey me? Did you actually make sacrifices to me? Like I said, there's a placeholder shrine over there. We're hoping that would cover it. Is that cool, right? It's silly. But you know what? That's the pinnacle of human philosophy. That's the pinnacle of human enlightenment when it comes to spirituality. The best man can do is make gods for himself, fashioning them according to his own imagination and frailties and insufficiencies and say, I hope that covers it. And that's a sad thing. Luckily, we no longer need to live in ignorance because the one true God has revealed himself. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So God is not only maker, he is also master, and he is the maintainer of all things. You know, breathing hasn't been quite so easy these last few weeks, right? But let's be reminded that every single breath that every single one of us takes is literally a gift from God. We talk about sometimes how much is a human life worth? How much, and you know, it's an an infinite amount. That's how much a human life is worth. Okay, well, God is giving each one of us an infinitely valuable gift every time he lets our heart beat and and breath go in our lungs. That's incredible grace. That's incredible generosity. That's incredible kindness, incredible goodness. And he is maintaining this world even though we ruined it with sin. And God does these things not because he needs us, but because he loves. He's a giver and a sustainer. And Christian, he's gonna sustain you now and forevermore. No matter what you're facing, no matter how cloudy the air is, literally or uh, figuratively, God will sustain you. Verse 26, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps that they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So much talk about ethnicity and race these days. We don't want to be callous or without tact, 
But listen, boiled all the way down, the Bible declares that there is one race, the human race. And interestingly, it declares that the reason why mankind has split off into national groups, according to Paul, is that so God could work out his loving providence and draw all men to himself. How can that be? Well, we remember the first great division of humankind is there at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. There they were working all together in an effort to reject God, to supplant God and say, we have no need of God anymore. And so God took a look at that and he says, you know, for their own good, we need to split them up because if we let them continue on this path, they're gonna be lost. So in love, God confused our language. And here Paul reveals that God scatters people not only throughout the world, but throughout the generations so that they will always be as close as possible to connecting with him if they will turn in repentance and faith. On a practical level, this means that God has scattered you into this time and into this place for a particular loving spiritual reason. And this is why we want to be very careful about tinkering with the movements of our life. Listen, if you have opportunities to move somewhere or do something, that's, that's all fine. It's not wrong to have opportunities, but we need to not tinker with the machinery of our lives without God's input and say, well, I'm going to move here. I'm going to do this. It seems good. I want to. What does God want? Because when God's people start tinkering without God's input, we see things like David, the poet king of Israel, saying, you know what would be a great idea for me to live with the Philistines right now and eventually say I'll go to war against my own people, the people I'm supposed to be king of, I'll, I'll go to war against them. And thank God that he spared David from, from doing that, right? But David thought, I'm gonna tinker with where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, I just, I'm going to leave God out of the equation for a while. And we see lots of examples like that in the scriptures. And so we want to be careful and we want to re recognize that God has placed us in a specific time and in a specific place for specific purposes. And so we let, need to let him have the helm of our lives. We also learn here that any person in any condition can reach out for God and immediately lay hold of him. There's no one too far gone, whether you're the prodigal in the pig pen or the king in the palace, God our Savior is immediately within reach and he is in fact reaching out for each and every person on the earth. Verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. When you think about non-Christian religious ideas which try to answer the questions of how we get to heaven or how to live a meaningful life, they're pretty sad. About as sad as carving a little image and calling that a deity. You know, people in our day-to-day -day lives will often say things like, I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'll, I'll be all right. Okay, that, that's not anything. That's not anything. If you're talking about cosmic, eternal good and evil, perfection and imperfection, right? That's kind of like saying, I'd like to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, please, right now. Okay, on what basis? Well, I didn't commit any genocide today. I'd like the million dollars. That's crazy. You say, you haven't earned that. Not committing genocide, yeah, okay. We're not, gonna, we're not even gonna give you a participation ribbon for that, right? <laughs> it's not how it works. 
Now imagine a thrice holy God who gave you life and breath and help and a way to be saved, who reached out to you, who gave all common grace and gave all these testimonies of himself and, and did all these things for you. And you stand before him and say, well, I wasn't as bad as I could have been. So can I get into heaven? Okay, well, did you love me? Did you try to know me? Did you listen when I spoke to you? No, but I made a carving and uh, I wasn't as bad as I could have been. It's obscene. It's sad. Paul highlights the fact that even unbelievers have an innate understanding that there is a God and that we owe our lives to him. He said some of your own poets have said this. As Christians, we need to preach and live out the truth that our lives are not our own. They belong to God. He is a gracious God for sure, full of love and kindness, but our lives are his for his glory, for his use. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So no more excuses. If a person wants salvation, if they want a life of meaning, if they want to be saved from hell and be made right, they must turn to God from whatever idol they serve, whatever philosophy they follow. They must turn in repentance and believe. It is commanded. And that is the first step for the unbeliever, not some method or program or formula. Just repent. That's it. And it's urgent they do so because each passing moment, each breath they take is one closer to the final judgment where they will stand before a perfect God and have to answer this question, are you righteous? And the Bible explains there's none righteous. No, not one. Only Jesus Christ passes that inspection and only those who are in his hand and washed by his blood will escape judgment and the penalty of their sin. Christ is that man appointed by God. He is the God-man who will judge the world in righteousness. And we know it's true because he was raised from the dead. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It would have been an intimidating crowd and not an altogether friendly one, but Paul didn't shy away from really delivering them the truth. They asked some questions. He directed them to Jesus and for their need to repent and be saved. Some people mocked him. Some were shook, but weren't ready to decide. Others were born again right then and there. And that's gonna be our experience as well. The encouragement is that when we share the gospel, the reaction is not your responsibility. It's not my responsibility. There will be a whole range of reactions like we're seeing here. Our responsibility is the message. And so let's be sure to deliver it in full. That doesn't mean we have to narrate the entire Bible, but we can give a presentation of the truth in telegram, telegram length if necessary. God is real. Stop. You're a sinner. Stop. God wants to save you. Stop. Jesus Christ is the only way. Stop. Repent and believe. Stop. Right? And we can expand from there. But, but, but it doesn't have to be some big, long thing. What Acts demonstrates is that just as God has scattered people throughout the world on purpose, he has also put you in certain places on purpose so that you can further his work and testify on his behalf. You can do so with force and boldness like Paul, but also with grace and tact like Paul. He didn't get into a shouting match with scoffers. When it was time, he just left peaceably. As the chapter closes here, Luke records two of the converts. I find this to be a very interesting postscript to the scene. Dionysius was an Areopagite, meaning he was probably one of the official judges in this prestigious institution. He would have been at least 60 years old, 
and he was named for a Greek god. We know the Greek god is Bacchus, as in Bacchanalia, the god of drunken revelry. Among other things, Bacchus was also the god of insanity and ritual madness. Very good. But you know what? It's interesting. That god, Dionysius, was also a god who had supposedly died and risen again. How interesting. So here we have this man, long steeped in paganism, lived most of his life in it, and he is an exemplar of Satan's counterfeit and ruin of man. And even he could be reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ with a simple presentation of the truth. And tradition tells us that ultimately this man, Dionysius, would become the bishop of Athens. What a great end after so many ruined years. So when you and I find ourselves in some intimidating conversation, take heart, Take the opportunity and remember that we are part of the continuing work of God on the earth and our God can overcome any lie of the devil. Our truth is enough to impact the smartest guy in the room. No life is too far gone. Even old Areopagites might be brought from darkness to light and used by the Lord. And so we may not find ourselves in Philippian dungeons, but we probably will find ourselves on a Mars hill or two at some point. Head for the hill, know that you're in good company, have a good God, you have a good God standing with you, filling your heart and using you for his glory.